Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hi, this is Claire Hamlet calling from Oxford in the UK. I'm a writer and editor for Sentient Media, and I'm calling about an article Mike recently wrote for Canary Media. The argument that eating chicken is better than beef for the climate has been around for a while. I just don't really see that it's justifiable for anyone who's serious about climate and serious about the health of our planet to be encouraging people to eat more chicken. I think we need to be throwing everything we've got at pursuing the options that we know are better for the animals and the planet. Obviously, it's more efficient to produce like more chicken in kind of smaller amounts of space, but... It's also kind of running counter to uh, increasing public concern about animal welfare. So it's almost asking people to reverse on that a little bit, which I think is, I mean, obviously I think is the wrong way to go. And I'd love to hear what Mike and Tamar think of all this. Let me fill you in on the backstory here. Mike wrote a piece a while back that acknowledged the problems with industrial chicken farming, but focused on the fact that climate-wise, Chicken is the best choice when it comes to meat. Yeah, in my column for Canary Media, which I hope you guys all check out because they're a great outfit, but I was super harsh on the chicken cartel, Uh, not only for the way they mistreat birds, but the way they mistreat workers and contract farmers and the incredible mess they make in terms of water quality. But their ruthless industrial efficiency has made chicken cheap. And as a result, Americans are eating way more chicken and significantly less beef than they did a half century ago. So in my column, I did write about how that shift has probably done more to reduce global warming than any other change in American life over the last 50 years. I even joked about how those eat more chicken ads for Chick-fil-A actually might have a point. So I guess it's not surprising that he got hit pretty hard on social media for being a callous, unfeeling jerk. As Mike's co-host, I kind of have the inside track on how seriously he takes animal welfare. And I'm here to tell you that although I wouldn't call him a callous, unfeeling jerk, I do think the Grunwaldian worldview is insufficiently attentive to animal welfare concerns. I am a meat eater. But I care a lot about the lives of my livestock. I have raised and slaughtered chickens, ducks, turkeys, and pigs. And when I'm not eating animals I raise myself, I try to buy meat from people doing it with care. So when I heard Claire's comments, I thought, she's got a point. (laughs) I thought, wait, I had a point too. (laughs) I, I get a little bit defensive about criticism. I know that'll come as a shock to you tomorrow. I totally reserve the right to have the same reaction when someone comes after me. But here's the thing. You only thought that for like a nanosecond. And then you thought we should do a show about her point. Well, look, she's right that going vegan is better for the climate and for animals. But I think I was right, too, because the world isn't going vegan anytime soon. And meat eaters should know that chicken is better for the climate than beef. I I also have to admit, I, I... push back a little bit against the notion that caring about the climate is this kind of environmentalist thing that ignores suffering. We talked about this a little bit last week in our food crisis episode. Climate change is going to cause incredible suffering for billions of people. But like you always say, food is about trade-offs. And it's fair. I probably do have climate tunnel vision. And the climate is not the only issue. 
I do tend to blow off these animal welfare issues. And Tamar, you've given me a hard time about them privately. I know you live them every day, and I don't know anyone who's more thoughtful about these issues than you. You've certainly got me thinking. So, yeah, I thought it would be cool if we hashed them out a little bit. And that's totally why I don't think you're a callous, unfeeling jerk. Because you are willing to revisit the Grunwaldian worldview and make changes where appropriate. You're willing to change your mind. (laughs) Well, we'll see. I don't want you to go too far. Okay, baby steps, Mike, baby steps. And who knows, maybe it's me who will end up changing my mind. In any case, we agree that animal welfare is worth talking about. So let's talk. I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. Okay, Tamar. Well, let's start with some statistics about the animals we eat. Because we've been doing it for more than 2 million years. We now eat more than 70 billion animals every year. Now, it's mostly chickens. That doesn't even include the billions of fish that we eat. Today, livestock, if you add them all up all over the world, they weigh more than humans. And they have 10 times more biomass than wild animals. We've talked a lot about the climate impact of of all those animals and all that grazing and all that feed. But Tamar, tell us, uh, what's the impact on animal welfare of all this eating we're doing of animals? Well, that's what we're here to talk about. And if you look at the animals that we have here in the United States, that we raise in the United States, and conditions are different in other places, um, I would say that caged laying hens have it worst. Um, Pigs are the next worst. Then broilers, the chickens we eat. And then I think the cows actually have it best. Oh, great. So so we've been telling everybody, uh, you know, don't eat beef because uh, cows are the worst for the climate, that chickens and pigs are a little better. But it sounds like if animal welfare is your thing, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, and this is the animal welfare episode. And we acknowledge that there are trade-offs here. But before we start talking about the trade-offs, we should talk about what exactly we're trading off. And so I think it's worthwhile to think about some of those animals. So let's let's start with the hens that are caged, um, and that's about three quarters of the the flock in the United States. We have at any given time about 325 million chickens laying eggs for us. Three quarters of them are in what are called battery cages. And in those cages, usually it's a few chickens per cage, and they have less space than an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. They can't really move around. They can't stretch their wings. They certainly can't run. These are very small cages. And that's why I think that caged hens have it worse. And they're growing super fast, right? Like it's it's not natural. Like they can barely stand up, right? They're so breast heavy. No, no, you're confusing laying hens and broilers. Those are the, the hens that we eat. And they're two completely different breeds. So the laying hens are bred to lay hard and die young, as we say. But they're not bred to grow super fast the way broilers are. And we'll get to broilers in a second. But so in the hierarchy, first you got the caged uh, laying hens, then we got pigs. And pigs are generally raised in barns. Mostly they have slatted floors so that the manure 
drops through and can be stored in lagoons. They don't have outdoor access. Mostly these environments are not enriched, and pigs can't really express their natural behaviors. They can't root And, you know, they have company of other pigs, but when they're so closely confined, often that doesn't seem to be great for the pigs. In fact, a lot of pig farmers have to dock the tails because they end up eating each other's tails because they don't have anything else to do. And they're allocated about a little over one square yard per pig. That is what I was just reading a paper about it, that optimal for both efficiency and animal welfare, meaning decreasing aggressive behaviors, 1.2 square meter per pig. Um, Third on the hierarchy is those broiler chickens you were talking about. These are the ones that are bred to grow super fast, and they do. And I have raised this breed myself. And I had sort of the same reaction some other people I know who have raised these these kinds of, of birds have, which is that they're kind of disgusting. After they get a certain to be a certain size, they don't move around much um, because they they're so breast heavy that they're very ungainly, and they're bred to just eat and grow and eat and grow, and that's what they do. And and most of the time they just hang out in their own poop, and they often lose the feathers on their chests. The breed itself is not conducive to animal welfare conditions. But I actually think the conditions in barns for broilers are way better than those for the caged chickens who are who are laying. And the birds have a little more space per bird, but because they're not in cages and chickens tend to hang out together, they actually do have the ability to, to move around and, and stretch and run. But they don't do much of that because that's the kind of breed that it is. Well, because they're giant, right? I, I saw somewhere that they grow seven times faster than they would naturally, right? I mean, they, oh, they, they, they grow. They don't have a lot of get up and go in them. You can see it almost day to day. And and yeah, they get to slaughter weight in like 49 days. It's amazing how quickly they grow. I should I should say the pigs grow quickly also. And and growing quickly isn't a bad thing if you're raising meat, but if it goes too far, um then I the chickens bodies just can't support that kind of growth. Cows have it better because most cattle spend uh, uh, most of their lives grazing on grass. Um and so so the ones that are in feedlots can have a bad time of it depending on the conditions in the feedlot. But in general, I think cows have it best. Let me ask you, I think we're, you know, it sounds like we're sort of discussing these kind of industrial factory farms. And of course, there are also organic farms, which sounds at least a lot kinder and gentler. And you see, right, the milk cartons with the frolicking cows. And, uh, you know, they you talk to the farmers and their their cows have have actual names instead of numbers but i know also some of these things like right i know that they tend to keep their cows antibiotic free which is something that consumers care a lot about and is really important for this antibiotic crisis but i don't know from the from the animals perspective you know presumably they'd like antibiotics so that they don't get sick uh, is there is there a difference between the kind of you know the hardcore efficiency uh, industrial farms and the maybe a little lighter organic farms? Yeah. Well, there are two things. There's organic and then there's antibiotic-free. And all 
uh, organic animals are antibiotic-free, and we can talk about that in a second. But first, let's talk about the the welfare of organic animals. Um, there aren't that many rules in the, you know, this is the organic standard is codified by the USDA, and organic farmers have to follow particular rules. And there aren't that many that pertain to, to animal welfare. Cows have to be grazed for a certain portion of the year. Uh, they can't have cages. Animals have to have access to outdoors, but it doesn't necessarily mean they spend their time outdoors. And they have to have organic feed and things like that. And they don't use antibiotics. Full disclosure, I do buy organic meat. And the reason why is that once years ago, and this could be a lousy reason, I, years ago, I was out with the head meat guy at Whole Foods and we were visiting turkey farms and we had a long conversation about organic versus not organic. And he's been to a bazillion farms because he visits all the places that supply Whole Foods. And it was his sense that even though animal welfare isn't codified in the organic standard, that organic farmers tended to be more attentive to it than non-organic farmers. And so there's only a limited amount you can tell about the welfare of an animal from the label in the supermarket. And you never have perfect information. But I, since I had that conversation, I have bought organic meat. Now let's talk about antibiotic-free, because all organic meat is antibiotic-free, but not all antibiotic-free meat is organic. Antibiotics are definitely a problem in the food supply, but they're a problem for a reason that I I think not everybody is clear on. People gravitate toward antibiotic-free meat because they're afraid of residue antibiotics in the meat, but that's a very rare problem. It's very tightly regulated, and for the most part, you're not going to get antibiotics if you eat meat that has been that has been treated with antibiotics. The problem is antibiotics in the food supply helps develop antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And that is how it affects human health, because if you get a bug that's antibiotic-resistant, you can get very sick. So I, I love that people are paying attention to using less antibiotics, but as you pointed out, if an animal is sick, treating it with antibiotics is sometimes the appropriate thing to do. Unfortunately, the choices are antibiotics or no antibiotics. And there isn't like a prudent <laughs> antibiotic use sticker, but I don't know. Maybe there will there will be when they put me in charge. Tomorrow, tomorrow that's like an amazing outline of the sort of situation that I think you know, like our listeners are going to be happy to hear it. And, and, and I am too, because this is not stuff that I'm, I'm an expert on, but it's funny. I, I'm like, I, you mentioned, for instance, that it, like pigs, uh, pigs are forced inside, um, which is not their natural way. And I actually went to a pig farm, um, and you know, it looked pretty cramped. But then they were all inside. But it also made me think. This was in it was in sort of southern Illinois, and I remember thinking, like, God, I bet, I bet they're kind of happy to be inside in the winter. <laughs> I, I visited a a cattle feed lot in Colorado. And I remember we went. I went driving around with the uh, you know the rancher who was in charge of it, and he stopped in the middle of the feedlot and he rolled down his his windows and he asked me, he's like, "So what do you hear?" And I was kind of I was like, "Well, I don't really hear anything." And he's like, "Well, you're surrounded by fifty thousand head of cattle. Uh, do you think they're suffering? Wouldn't they be making some noise if they were suffering?" And my honest answer was. Well, I don't know. 
Like, I don't really know what the cows want. Um, and I don't know if it's good enough that they're, they're not screaming all day long. I, I guess what I wanted to ask you is what do we owe these animals? That, that rancher called them, they called them like the beef cattle, you know, which are, or the beef animal, which is something it seems to kind of, you know, so you don't really think of it as a sentient being. It's just kind of a, you know, sort of widget in the you know, factor of production type thing. What do we owe these animals? It's a great question, and I would sum it up pretty simply. I think we owe them a decent life. But then the hard question is, what constitutes a decent life for a pig or a cow or a chicken? And, you know, I think one of the difficulties is that in assessing animal welfare, there aren't that many things, well, there are a number of things you can measure. You can measure in, you know, in the chicken industry and they measure cannibalism and injury and you can always measure illness and, and they try to measure things like aggressive behavior or play behavior. But it's kind of hard to nail down exactly what makes a chicken happy or what makes a pig happy. And, you know, I have spent a lot of time with chickens and with pigs trying to figure out exactly that. And there are things that you can figure out. Chickens are actually pretty good at telling you what they want. I mean, if you want to know if they want to go outside, all you have to do is open the door and they'll <laughs> tell you. And, you know, you can tell what they like to eat because they'll either glom onto it and gobble it down or they'll look up at you and say, yeah, what else you got? And so you can figure out what makes animals happy the same way we can figure out what makes our dogs and cats happy. And pigs are smart animals, and things do make them happy. I'm thoroughly convinced that pigs are capable of joy. And, you know, on a warm day when we, when we had our pigs, we would go down to the pig pen and Kevin, my husband, I'd take the hose down and we would shower the pigs and the pigs would run through the water and they would dance. And I have a video of it. There, there's just no question that this is a happiness behavior. And, you know, do we owe every animal an optimal life? I think that's probably unreasonable, but we owe them a pretty good life. And then you kill them though, right? I mean, yes, maybe, the, maybe the chickens and pigs would they like the life you'd given you're giving them and maybe they'd prefer to keep enjoying it. I am absolutely sure that they would. But here's the thing. The only reason they exist is that we eat them. And that's the only reason we raise them. So the choice isn't whether you have this pig that you kill at six months or you let the pig live out its multi-year life, you know, eating feed and dancing in the spray from the hose. The choice is, do you have the pig for six months and kill it, hopefully, instantaneously, or do you not have the pig at all? Because if we're not going to kill the pig to eat it, there is no pig. That's that's really interesting, and I'm I'm just thinking this through. I'm not trying to be a troll here, um, <laughs> but you did say it's sort of you know our obligations are a little different because that pig wouldn't be there if not for us. What's the kind of moral principle here that w that we're upholding? Well, for me, I draw a bright line at humans, and humans are capable of understanding things that no other animal can understand. I've talked to animal behaviorists about this, and 
I've never encountered one who believes that an animal understands that its life is finite, that it's going to end, and there will be no more animal after that happens. And, you know, there, there are stories about elephants who seem to mourn their dead, although animal behaviorists disagree about that also. But even that is different from understanding that your own life is finite. And so if my pig gets to live for six months and then is killed instantaneously, it doesn't know the death is coming. It has no idea what was taken from it. Um, all it knew was six months of, you know, a good life in a big pen with good things to eat and company and treats and showers. And I think that the calculus there is the pig wins, but we also win. Well, look, I know, you know, humans and our ancestors have been eating meat for, what is it now, two, two and a half million years. But I understand why people came back at me and they said, you know, hey, you know, just don't eat meat. That would that would solve a lot of animal welfare problems. It totally would. And veganism is a principled position that I respect, but I don't share. But the thing about human existence is that it's an animal-killing enterprise. If you don't think it's okay to support humans by killing animals, then we have to die off as a species because we kill them when we take their habitat, we kill them with our machines, we kill them with our chemicals. And, you know, let's talk about rats for a second. You know how many rats are poisoned to be kept out of the grain supplies? <laughs> no. And neither do I because nobody even bothers to count. But it's a whole lot of them. And so veganism keeps the evidence of animal killing off the dinner table, but it still goes on. So for me, the question isn't, are we willing to kill animals? Because we have to be. The question is, under what circumstances do we kill animals? And I would like to keep suffering to a minimum. And I would, I would make the case that my pigs, who lived for six months and died an instantaneous death, had very little suffering, if any. Tamar, that's, that rat example is fascinating because I think it does, you know, it is a real challenge um, to vegans who are sort of saying like, you know, I, I don't want to be part of this, you know, animal killing complex. You're kind of saying everybody is, deal with it, which I think is really compelling. And presumably, you know, one, one reaction would be like, gosh, we should be taking more care with our rats. Maybe we should be more humane with it. But just to give my honest reaction, I thought like kind of, huh, that's a really good point. And it made me care a little bit less. You know, we're already killing the rats. You know, why shouldn't we be killing livestock too, right? If uh, I get it, if you're going to care about every animal, veganism makes sense. But what is the line? If we are going to start killing animals for our food or continue doing it, like what's the, like, do we care more when they're smarter? Is that the, is that the, Right that's a, that's actually a really good question. And I've thought a lot about it because I, I do think that what we owe animals is commensurate with their capacity to enjoy the world. And so, yeah, I think we owe pigs more than we owe chickens. Um, and I think rats are a really unfortunate example because they're really smart animals, but we do have to keep them out of the grain supplies. And so it's really, really tricky. 
Um, but of course, you know, nobody's, well, I guess they're breeding rats to, to use them in experiments, but nobody's breeding them for, you know, the sewers or the grain silos. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's just a really unfortunate byproduct of human existence, those rats. But I think we can do better by our pigs and our chickens and our cows. Well, it's, it's interesting. I think in our culture, right, we're sort of trained to anthropomorphize uh, these these animals, right? Um, like take pigs, right? There's Babe, there's Miss Piggy. You know, my kids grew up with Peppa Pig. And yet, you know, we eat them. We love bacon. Um, I, I remember we, talking to Frank Mitloner, the, uh, the professor who's a big sort of pro-livestock, pro-animal ag guy out in Cal Davis. And he was... He's really tight with the, you know, the industrial farming industry, but he was kind of saying that, you know, we're sort of doing a disservice to the industry itself by making it sound like these, you know, these farm animals, they're our friends. And he's, he was saying, like, if we're going to eat this stuff, we should think about it as food and not worry so much about trying to be their friends. I cannot tell you how loathsome I find that attitude. Oh, wow. And it wasn't by me. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Here, when we got our pigs the first time, and I wrote about it, and people said, you know, whatever you do, don't name them. And the first thing we did was name them. And we spent time with them. Um, we hung out with them. We brought them good things to eat. We scratched their heads. We, we associated with them. And the reason we did is because we owed those pigs a good life. And the idea that we would withhold our affection to protect ourselves from feeling something um, and that we would deny them something that they absolutely enjoyed to protect ourselves was just, it, it was completely foreign to me. And when, when we slaughtered the pigs and I wrote about that, one thing really surprised me. I knew I was going to hear from from animal rights people, and I knew I was going to hear from vegans about the very issue of killing pigs. You shouldn't do that. But the thing that surprised me was that people said I had betrayed them because we had befriended them. They were treated like pets. Um, and then we killed them. And people thought it was worse to be good to them and kill them than to be standoffish with them and then kill them. And that totally mystifies me. And that's Frank's line. That's so interesting. I mean, I think about, as as you know, I have two pain-in-the-ass dogs, right? You're very fond and of them. I pet them. <laughs> I scratch their heads, right? All those things you were talking about. Um, but I'd feel pretty weird about eating them. And you went ahead and ate your pigs. I mean, would you eat a dog? Not if I didn't have to. But it it's only because that's a learned disgust response. So there are cultures where they eat dog and they're totally fine with it. And there's no moral reason that a dog is different from a pig. So this is just a matter of enculturation. Morally, pigs and dogs are essentially equivalent. Look, I'm a hypocrite, no question about it. You're killing your own animals and then eating them. Obviously, just because somebody else is killing it for me, there shouldn't be really a, a moral difference. Like, when you think about it, you wonder if in 100 years, people will look back at how barbaric it is that, you know, we had 70 billion animals that we were eating every year. I, I can't really justify my choices on this. I You know, I like meat and I 
you know, I guess I don't think of it from the animal's perspective that much. What what I imagine is that there are, there are a lot of people who feel like I do. We don't want to think about it so much as we eat meat. You know, I've heard people who are working on the sort of, if not animal rights side, the kind of plant-based meat side, talking about how you can't just tell people don't eat meat. Um, that's not going to work because there's this defensiveness about animal welfare among carnivores. It's like a real disconnect. I, I saw a poll that 45% of Americans think slaughterhouses should be ban banned, but obviously it's not like, you know, it's not like only 55% of Americans eat meat. It just, it's hard to keep these conflicting ideas in our heads. I totally agree. And, and people have trouble with this. People don't want to think about it. Um, and so, yeah, it's a really fraught issue, and that's before you get to the climate impact. You know, it is true, tomorrow. Look, we're the climavores, right? Not only did I write that column that, that Claire didn't like about the eat more chicken thing, but you wrote a column that was basically eat more pork if you care about the climate. Yeah, I guess the, the reason I didn't get quite so much vitriol on social media is my column was a little kinder and gentler than yours. <laughs> but but yeah, no, and I did write about pigs, and I did write about switching from, from beef to pork. And there are trade-offs. This is what our show is about. Almost always, meat is not a great climate choice, and we acknowledge that the animals that are raised in CAFOs, those confined animal feeding operations— are the best for climate, but they're not the best for other things. Meat is almost always just not the best choice. I should note that there is one exception to the climate impact rule about meat, and that is overpopulated wild animals. So uh, I try and hunt every couple of years, so there's venison in my freezer, and you know, taking an overpopulated ruminant that's doing environmental damage out of the environment is a positive good. You can say the same about Canada geese, about feral hogs, about invasive fish and shellfish. So there are a few uh, meat choices that are good for the environment. But uh, raised meat, it's just not the case. And because it is pretty much the worst food for the climate, I think we have to think long and hard before we make decisions about raising animals that will increase that climate impact. Right. I do think, you know, we always talk about how food is about trade-offs. That's your great line. But I think people have to reckon with the idea that it is a trade-off, right? If if we want our animals treated better, there's could be an efficiency hit, um, which could have a cost hit. And we talked last week about how important it is that food remain cheap. Um, and it could have a climate hit if it's going to take you know more resources and more land to raise the same amount of animals. We have to sort of acknowledge that there is a little bit of a stark choice, right? Do you want things to be more humane or do you want there to be fewer emissions? And that is a stark choice. I think that there is a bright line and there are things that we shouldn't be doing to animals in any situation for almost any reason, like keeping them in tiny cages where a chicken has less space than an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And I think that the answer here is that we want 
more humane treatment of animals, but we have to eat fewer of them in order that we don't increase the climate impact. No, I think that's a that's an interesting point, right? Because in California, they're having this big fight over a, a ballot referendum that was passed but has been held up in court um, that would give pigs a little bit more room, right? You know, it's not like they're going to put them in McMansions or take them to Disney every year, uh, but they will have slightly larger stalls. But the producers say that if this goes through, it's going to increase the price of bacon like 60%. And again, you know, they're talking their own book. Who knows what the exact figure is? Those are fighting words. You know, you want to make animal welfare concerns unpopular, just tell people that it's you know, jacking up the price of their bacon. And Tamar is right. Pork is a great alternative to more expensive beef. But if you're putting in various rules that are going to make it harder to raise pork, that could make it more expensive and it could mean more beef. And of course, when prices are high, um, there's going to be a huge incentive for cattlemen or pork farmers to expand into forests and wetlands. Um, There really are trade-offs here. There absolutely are. But I want to flip the question on its head and say, okay, let's go back to the days before we had gestation crates, which are the crates that you're talking about that they put sows with litters in so that they don't roll over on their pigs and and kill the piglets. If we were at that point, why weren't we asking the question, is it worth it to put animals in tiny cages to make food cheaper in a country where protein deficiency is not a problem? And I think the answer then would have been no, but nobody was asking the question. They were just asking, how can we make meat cheaper? And that's how we got to this point. And, you know, you and I totally agree that food has to be affordable, but that doesn't mean every single food has to be affordable. It means people have to be able to feed themselves healthfully, wholesomely, on the budget that they have, and and I would add that we need government assistance for people who can't. But that doesn't mean that we have to keep the price of everything in our grocery store low. But again, I do think it's important to point out, like, cheaper chicken, all those terrible, sadistic, oligopolistic things about how it was raised— it did help save the Amazon from deforestation. And it would be really terrible if making chicken and pork more expensive drove more consumers to beef, right? And again, and Claire did point out that veganism is to a large extent a kind of no regret solution, that it's better not only for animals, but for the climate. I do think we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, we totally do. There's going to be a climate impact if we raise animals more slowly. They need more feed. They need more time. They need more space. And that has an impact. And I admire veganism. I admire Claire for for taking issue with some of the things that, that, that you talked about. But it's, it's not going to feed the world. People just aren't going to do it. So we need solutions that, that don't go that far. Right. If your mantra is that food is about trade-offs, mine is better is better than worse, right? I think we're, we need to talk a little bit about what's going to make things better. So Tamar, let me ask you, are there ways that industrial farmers or processors or anyone involved in the food chain can improve animal welfare without creating huge losses in efficiency that end up 
increasing emissions and food prices. Well, there are going to be some losses in efficiency. There's no question about it. Our system was designed to be super efficient. So you change it and you roll back some of those things and yeah, you're going to lose efficiency. If it were up to me, here's what I would want for animals. You know, for pigs, I would want more space. I would want enriched environments. They play with toys. And I would want deep bedding so they can root, which is what pigs do. Um, Ideally, they go outside, but I think you can definitely raise indoor pigs that are happy and, and well taken care of. For chickens, I would absolutely go for a slower growing breed. I think that that the breeds that we raise for broilers are just inherently, it's just not a humane situation. And I would also enrich the environments for the chickens. We hang uh, greenery, weeds from, from the ceiling of the chicken coop so they have something to peck at. Um, there are roosts that they can hop up on. And I think that that's, that's important for all animals. And for cattle, I think, you know, after I had a long talk with Temple Grandin, she convinced me that having a well-drained, shaded feedlot is the most important thing for cow well-being. And I want to add, though, uh, something here that that maybe I should have said up top, that I think that there are a lot of farmers raising animals in these CAFOs who are very, very attentive to their animals. And yeah, I take issue with density. I take issue with unenriched environments. But I don't think that all of these farmers are engaging in the horrors that we see on some of the animal welfare videos. I think lots of them are are responsible, well-meaning stewards of their animals. And I kind of want to give a shout out to them. Well, look, like that rancher I went to see in Colorado, I mean, it was incredible. He knew, like, to the 100th decimal point, he knew exactly how much water he was using. Um, He knew exactly where every drop in manure in his farm was going. And I really worry about reducing efficiency at all, because as We've said, and I'm a complete bore about this, but we're going to need even more food with even less land, which is going to mean even more efficient. And so, you know, if we're going to start taking efficiency hits and yield hits, we've always said that yield is kind of non-negotiable. Like treating animals well feels like it should be non-negotiable as as well, but there's a real tension between them. I've talked to some people in industry, and you should tell me if this is BS, um, but They've said that, for instance, there's been this big move towards cage-free eggs. Uh, And they say, like, you know, that's led a lot of chicken farmers to just take them out of the cages and they sort of pile them all together. And they're they're pecking at each other because they're now free to move about the cabin and uh, and they're taking advantage to, you know, eat each other. And the chicken people want you to believe it's either maximum efficiency or chaos. And, you know, yeah, if you take chickens out of cages and you still keep them in environments where they're overcrowded and they have to compete for resources, you're going to have problems. Animals need space. And, you know, those aren't the only two choices that the ones that get studied. But, yeah, 
you, the chickens out of cages take risks. They get injured. And chickens are little dinosaurs. They do peck at each other. They do have a pecking order. Um, they are all out for number one. So, yeah, you're going to have some of those problems. But, you know, it's it's the whole liberty versus security thing. <laughs> and And I happen to think that liberty is really important. But more importantly, I'm going to say it again. I do not think you should keep an animal in a cage where she can't spread her wings or run around or do the things that animals do. Tell me your sort of vision for the, a system that, you know, can feed the world without frying the world um, and can do it without torturing animals or making them uncomfortable all day long. I think we have to take animal cruelty seriously. And there are you know, animal cruelty statutes in, in some states. And I don't see why we should be thinking of livestock differently from other animals. They are sentient creatures. And if we are going to raise them for meat or for eggs or for milk, we have to give them some basic living standards. And I would love to see that codified by law. If we do that, yes, meat is going to be more expensive. But here is my vision of a better system. Everyone, rich and poor, eats half as much meat and pays twice as much for it and makes up the difference in lentils. <laughs> you and your lentils. I really worry about that kind of heavy-handed, big government regulatory solution. It seems seems really important for some of the the worst outrages. And my sense is that in that sense, regulation has been somewhat effective in kind of getting rid of some of the torturing of animals. But like you just mentioned, I mean, if we're going to make food, any kind of food, twice as expensive, um, that is going to create hardships. In the United States, we're going to have to reduce our, particularly our beef consumption, um, probably about by half. But again, we've said that Food has to be affordable, if not just for humane and substantive reasons, for political reasons. You know, we don't want people to think of their expensive bacon as a climate or animal welfare penalty. That's just going to make people hate climate and animal welfare solutions. The United States could force, you know, the owners of these CAFOs or any rancher to treat their animals better. But in many cases, that'll just be an advantage for cruel and often less efficient producers abroad. So my ideal way of dealing with this, and I got to admit, I don't have really great solutions, um, but one obvious one would be a serious effort to promote alternatives to animal products, right? Fake meat and dairy, they're really like renewables and electric vehicles, and they need to get a lot cheaper and better because as we discussed, Right now, people don't like them enough, but the government can help with research and deployment to bring them down that cost curve and hopefully up the tastier curve. And those are really no regret solutions, right? It would mean less beef, also presumably less pork and chicken, less milk and cheese and eggs. And, uh, and that would be from a climate perspective, as well as an animal welfare perspective, that would be helpful. You know, again, we're climavores, and one of our big themes has been, hey, you can do what you want, but you should know the facts, and you should be aware of what you're doing. This will sound a little goofy, but I am trying to be more conscious that a chicken died for my chicken. And I think that that's 
that is super important. And the fact that you're thinking about it more is the reason that I was so glad that you wanted to do this show. I think that one of the byproducts of our industrialized food system is that we have gotten very far away from the idea that food comes from somewhere. We don't know the people who grow our food or who raise our animals. And I think when, you know, meat gets reduced to the pink things in the styrofoam packages in the grocery store, it's so easy to not be aware. I know maybe this is a pipe dream, but I think if people got reacquainted with animals, the animals that are their food, um, that awareness might come a little more naturally. And I actually think that seniors in high school should have a field trip to a slaughterhouse. And Mike, I'm going to say, maybe someday you should kill something you're going to eat. Oh, man. Talk about a trade-off. Is it okay if I just eat a lot more Impossible Burgers? I'm not going to force your hand on this, but I am kind of glad that you're at least thinking of uh, moving the needle on the Grunwaldian worldview. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to hear from you. This show is about answering questions, so bring yours. Give us a call at 508-377-3449 or drop us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. We could answer your question on an upcoming episode. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, an uncharacteristically humbled Michael Grunwald. <laughs> Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey are the executive producers and Ann Bailey is the senior editor. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is the managing producer. Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. And the engineering is done by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Help us grow. The best way you can spread the word is by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. And if you have somebody who you think would like us, pass them a link. We know you've been doing it and we really appreciate it. And we'll be back again next week with a new show. 